him to Israel, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you in heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So everyone, as we prepare to receive this morning's teaching, I want to first introduce our guest. And it's almost hard to call him a guest anymore because we've seen Dr. Gary Burge here at Mars Hill just a few times before now, but he's become a beloved uh, teacher to our community. But for those of you for whom this is your first introduction to Dr. Gary Burge, he's a dean at Calvin Theological Seminary. Uh, he's so smart and he dives into a text almost like no one I've ever uh, encountered. He's taught me so much about how to bring the word of God alive through not just the words on the page, but the context, the history, the visual markations of what makes that word come alive. But probably most personally, this is what you have to know. Gary has walked alongside Delwyn and me in multiple seasons of our lives, starting at Willow Creek um, through the time that we moved here. And it was right before we moved to Grand Rapids, we sat in Gary and his wife Carol's home. And the one thing it felt like they wanted us to know was that they were here for us and they wanted to make sure we had people praying for us. They wanted to make sure we were being covered in prayer and that we knew the importance of being prayed for in this new season of ministry. So I think you'll experience, I know you'll experience Gary to be just a top-notch teacher. I'm excited for that. But I also want you to experience his heart for our church, for its leaders, for you, the people of God. Um, so before he comes up, we'll do what we've been doing the past few weeks and reciting the creed up till where we are right now this week. So if you are willing and able, would you stand as we begin to recite? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And without further ado, would you join me in welcoming Dr. Gary Birch? Well, good morning. It's marvelous to be with you. Um, it seems to me like I have watched COVID unfold uh, sort of with you. I've, I've been online with you. I had some people say to me earlier this morning, we've only seen you on our computer 
and we're wondering what you look like live. So anyway, um, one wonders what you look like, how it, how it works out. Um, I was with you back in the spring, I think when we were all just beginning to open. I think there were, it was great to have people here. We had about 12 of us here, which was fun. But 12, it was awesome, it was fantastic. But every church uh, in Grand Rapids, and dare I say every church in the United States, is actually experiencing the same thing. How is it we're going to be um, different as we begin to come back? As one person who does a lot with church strategies and things said, said, you know, before COVID, you could say that we were in A. COVID is B. And most of us want to think we're going back to A. But that's probably not the case. If pre-COVID was A and COVID was B, we're going to C. And right now, the church is really working out what does it mean to be in C? How is it we're going to be different? What is it going to feel like reacclimating ourselves to the communities that we belong to? So my church, your church, it's wonderful to see how we're actually moving gradually into this environment. The other thing I wanted to tell you is that you guys have really spruced up the place. I'm, so I was here in March. Well, I remember a couple of years ago, when you walked out there in that hall, it was... Not like that, let's put it that way. <laughs> so I walked out there this morning and I was just kind of dazzled. I mean, I thought, what in the world is this? The children's thing, the reception area, welcome, the, the whole thing, it's really amazing. You should be so pleased with that. I mean, God has just blessed Mars uh, in the last year with so much. So the other thing I wanted to say to you is I am just so delighted how you have welcomed uh, Delwyn and Ashley into your community. Um, we do love both of them and uh, we have a lot of history going back to Willow Creek and it is just, just so cool to see that you have become their home, their spiritual home, their network of friendships and family. It's just really, really marvelous. Thank you for that. It is a joy to see them here, and it is, I know, a blessing that you are having them with you. Okay, so um, today our uh, discussion is going to be on the ascension that is here, of course, in the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Let me, first of all, just affirm what you are doing uh, by learning the Apostles' Creed. Do you know how rare that is today? I seem, I feel like I grew up in a completely different era. I was a Lutheran, uh, that's how I grew up in the Lutheran church, and man, we were disciplined. When I was 12 years old, I graduated into confirmation class. Listen to this one. Could you pull this off today? Every Saturday morning for two years, I met in a class with our pastoral staff. We got summers off. <laughs> And we could not take the Lord's Supper until we had graduated from that class. That was incredible. Does anybody recognize that pattern? Anybody in here? There's like, oh yeah, there's like five or six real Christians here, I see. So, memorization was huge. I mean, we started with the Lord's Prayer. That was nothing. We had to go through the Ten Commandments. It was Luther's Shorter Catechism is what we used. Anyway, I see people nodding like, yes, right, Luther. I'm so glad we heard the name Luther in here. Anyway, so the Shorter Catechism, but the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we memorized all of it. It was like, this is what you needed to know in order to anchor your faith. 
So therefore, I mean, I, I think that this is just marvelous that you're doing something like this. Creeds are good things. They're very good things. They are like the painted lines on the interstate. If you want to get to your destination securely, safely, and successfully, what you do is you stay between the lines. That's how you drive. That's how it's supposed to go. Now, if you go anywhere in the world where they don't do that, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. To me, the scariest city to ever be in a car is Cairo, but I'm sure there are others as well. Cairo, it's crazy. I mean, if you go to the main square in downtown Cairo, it's called Tahrir Square. Anyways, huge roundabout. You can barely see across the darn thing. There's like 10 lanes of traffic and nobody observes anything. Red light, lights are a suggestion. <laughs> Lines on the road are a nice idea, but they're doing, and then there are pedestrians cutting through it all the time. It's really fun. It's, it's like a taxi driver's suicide wish. Anyway, so um, I had a student of mine uh, who is uh, Egyptian, and he said to me, he said, I'm so happy. I'm getting a lot of bang noise. Am I, I, I wonder if I need to have this adjusted. Delwyn, are you gonna rescue me or? Okay. Yeah, thank you. Testing. And then is this off now? Yeah, okay. So anyway, um, yeah, so anyway, this Egyptian friend, uh, student said to me, he said, Dr. Bird, she said, this is so cool. My mom just got her driver's license in Egypt. And I'm thinking, oh my Lord, how can that be? And I said, well, how is she doing in her driver's class? And she said, she just learned the newest, coolest thing. She said to me, I just learned that the line on the road does not go between your wheels. If you want to get to your destination safely and successfully, observe the lines. Creeds are like that. Creeds give us safety and success when we are moving through our faith. That's what they do. They're kind of like boundaries, and they're excellent. They're good boundaries. But today, so few of us try to understand them. Now, in order to appreciate the ascension, what we have to do is just go back a little bit and, and appreciate the things which were happening to the disciples in this last week or so of Jesus' life. It's a drama. They were experiencing a drama, and so therefore you've got to be in touch with how this, this what they were feeling. First of all, they had to get their minds around the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, that was a big deal. If you look at the Gospels, you can see in the first half of Jesus' public ministry, they just don't get it. I mean, the Messiah is a huge concept inside of Judaism, and the assumption was when this person comes, he's almost going to glow in the dark. And so therefore, as they watch Jesus' ministry, it takes Peter for the first time to say, yes, you are the Messiah, the Christ. But it was a very big pill to swallow. As soon as they made that declaration, you can imagine how their entire lives changed. So that was the first thing they had to comprehend. But then, secondly, there was something more. Because you see, the Messiah inside of Judaism is, is modeled really very much after Moses. He's a regular human being who has extraordinary power that is going to lead Israel to its salvation. Moses led Israel out of Egypt. So likewise, the Messiah was going to bring a kind of renewal to the land of Israel. So, therefore, when Jesus begins talking about being the Son of God, when he begins to hint that there is something more in his life, that he is connected to God in a way that no other human has ever been connected, 
When they begin to see this kind of new information, you can imagine it's a second gigantic pill to swallow. How is it that we comprehend him? What does it mean for him to be the son of God? Not just Messiah, but to be the son of God because the son of God is not a title used for the Messiah. And then there was a third thing. Jesus begins talking about how he must die and they watch this. They watch him get arrested. They watch him get crucified. They're amazed by this because there is no, nothing in the Jewish playbook of the time that the Messiah is going to die. It just isn't there. The Messiah is supposed to be victorious and strong. He's going to die? No precedent. That's why there is shock and there is despair. They just can't comprehend this. After the cross, they're huddled in Jerusalem, probably brushing up their LinkedIn sites so that they can find their next careers. What's next for them? Then, here's the next pill they've got to swallow. The buried Jesus is suddenly resurrected from death. How is that? There is no precedent for that either. Judaism did believe in a resurrection, but it was a general resurrection for all of Israel that would be back in the far time in, in the future. But this idea that someone would actually emerge from the grave and then have this resurrected life, nothing. There was, they, they just could not believe this. And then the last pill for them to swallow. This resurrected Jesus then ascends into heaven. No precedent. They are awestruck. This idea that now that he's resurrected and he seems to have this divine life, then he begins to depart in a miraculous way. This is his farewell. This is his departure. They are so shocked in Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 11, an angel has to actually say to them, you can, I can imagine them sort of slapping them around a little bit. They're all standing there looking into the sky. And the angel says, what's up with you guys? You've got things you're supposed to do. Jesus has given you a mission. You're staring at the clouds. They are awestruck. Now, I think this last experience of the ascension, of Jesus' departure, set them thinking. Here is what they began to think. First, Jesus is somewhere. He has gone to a location. He has not simply disappeared as all others disappear, it seems, when they die. He has actually gone somewhere. His incarnate body, his body which he has demonstrated to them by eating some food in his resurrection, this physicality, this body of his has now left earth and gone somewhere else. So there is a sense of location with Jesus. If he's not here, and he hasn't simply dissipated into the breeze, he must be somewhere. That's a gigantic thought. Where has he gone? Second idea is that somehow a portal has opened between heaven and earth. That thin membrane that separates heaven and earth now has been pierced. They no doubt thought back to the transfiguration and where on a mountaintop Elijah and Moses showed up to validate Jesus' identity. But here again, Jesus now has moved through that membrane. And when they moves, those who move through that membrane 
are bearing the glory of God because the glory of God permeates all that is in heaven. Okay, so Jesus is somewhere. There has been movement, transportation between earth and heaven. But then there was a third idea that undoubtedly then came down on them. If Jesus is resuming a life he shared with the Father, what does this mean about his earlier life? What does this mean about his identity with the Father in heaven? What does this mean about his life before Bethlehem? We all thought that Jesus just began when he was born in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph and the whole nativity story. But if in his ascent he is resuming a place he had with the Father, does that mean that he held that place before he was born? Do you get the logic of it? So therefore... They began thinking, how do we imagine now, not just Jesus' departure, but Jesus' arrival? About 1,800 years ago, one of our most brilliant theologians in the church is a man named Athanasius. In the 300s, um, Athanasius really began to think carefully about the chemistry of what we are to understand. And he said, the ascension is the key that unlocks Jesus' truest identity. The ascension is the key that unlocks Jesus' truest identity. Because in it, what you begin to see is that there is what he called the path of the Son of God. The journey of the Son. Now, if I can just illustrate this with you, you'll be able to see basically how this would work. If you can imagine creating a kind of chart with the Father at the top and this world in the bottom, you might say to yourself, okay, I get what we're saying here then. The Son of God, Jesus, is someone who had always lived with the Father and therefore he descended into the earth. He wasn't someone who emerged from the earth. He is someone who descended from heaven. And when he descended, he appropriated our human life. And of course, the language we use that is incarnation. He became flesh. He lived his life in this world. The cross is at the very center of what transpires. And then in the resurrection, we see the transformation in which he begins his ascent. He then moves from this earthly life to something other. And in his ascent, then, he returns to the Father. So Jesus, therefore, did not simply have a, we call it, post-existence. He had a pre-existence. And this is enormous. Jesus, therefore, is not just simply someone who is one among us and like us. He is a heavenly visitor who appropriated who we are. His work climaxes at the cross for sure, but his work continues as he ascends to heaven and he brings our humanity to the Father. So, he becomes in his ascension our courier to God. He becomes someone who has taken who we are, taken our humanity, and elevated it into the Father's presence. So the saving work of Christ is not merely on the cross, but in this entire divine choreography. 
The saving work of Christ is not simply Jesus on the cross, but it's also this divine choreography. It's in his descent from the Father that he is able to facilitate his life with us, his representative death on the cross, and then in his ascent, he carries our needs back to heaven. Athanasius said, now in this choreography, if you miss one part of that dramatic movement of the Son into our world and returning to the Father, the ascent and descent, if you miss one part of it, the entire edifice breaks. It falls, and therefore it has to hang together. So Jesus had predicted these things. <clears throat> he predicted all of these things, his arrest, his cross, and his resurrection. He did these things. They were still dumbfounded by it. But I mean, has anybody ever predicted something with you? And then when it happens, you say, oh, well, I, didn't, I can't remember you said that. So Jesus had talked really openly about these things. But the ascension, because of its implications, he kept for his closest disciples inside of the upper room. So therefore, what we can read is in John chapter 14, let me give you an example of how Jesus predicted this. John chapter 14, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that also where I am, you will be. Now see very clearly what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, look, I am going to depart, but when I do, I have work to accomplish. I'm going to heaven and I'm going to be there waiting for you, preparing a place for you. Listen to this, John 16. He's still in the upper room with his disciples. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered this world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Do you hear it right there? Jesus has been explicit. So in other words, his departure in his resurrection ascension is a resumption of a life he had always had from the beginning of time. Um, his final prayer in John 17 has this same, same language. Listen to it carefully now. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. I'm at John 17, 1. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, here comes the sentence. Here's the zinger. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before the world began, there, do you see the drama? Do you see the choreography? He knows he is going to resume his life with the Father, but it is a life which he possessed before he was born. Jesus, therefore, had what we could call a divine identity, 
a divine identity, and it's something that set him apart from everyone else. Now, in the Gospels, at the end of Luke's Gospel, we have our description of the ascension given to us really very clearly. Um, at the end of Luke chapter 24, what you have is um, Jesus appearing with his disciples. They're incredulous. Um, I don't know why this seems to be the case, but he says, give me something to eat. He eats fish, and that proves he's human again. <laughs> That's interesting. So anyway, he eats food. He wants to demonstrate that he actually is the same person that he was before. But then, this is the key verse I want you to see. In his resurrection life, before his ascension, it says this. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Oh, he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send, to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he then led them to the vicinity of Bethany, that's just near the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So here what Luke is telling us in chapter 24 is that Jesus, therefore, is one who then completes a time of instruction with him, and then he ascends into heaven, and as he does so, he blesses them. That language for blessing is the language of a Jewish priest. He therefore departs with his blessing. Now, the other, there's a second version of this, which Luke knows that you're going to read all, well, he hopes you're going to read all of his, uh, of his, of his books. He has a second book, which is in uh, Luke, it is in the book of Acts, chapter 1. And in Luke, Acts chapter 1, we read it earlier, you get a little bit more detail about this, because after the resurrection, Jesus actually stays with them for 40 days. Before his ascension, he's with them for 40 days. And this is, the text says in Acts chapter 1, that he opens the scriptures to them. As Luke 24 said, he opens their minds so that they can comprehend what his role has been as the Messiah, Son of God. So he teaches them, and then in verse 6, as we read earlier, after all of this instruction for 40 days, you think they would have gotten it. They come to Jesus and they say, okay, we have had our instruction. Now, are you going to use your great messianic power and establish the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to restore Israel? Remember I talked about Moses bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and restoring Israel? Are you going to do that? And here Jesus has to give his final correction. His mission in the world is not the institution of a political entity of any kind. His interest in the world is empowering his followers with the Holy Spirit and setting them afoot to go into the world to bring the kingdom of God from nation to nation. It isn't in the establishment of one nation. It is a blessing to all nations. So the picture that we have from Acts chapter 1 is that Jesus ascends, he goes into the clouds, but this imagery is simply for us. 
This is an imagery that simply serves our imaginations because as people who live in three dimensions, we need something concrete to understand where he goes. As he ascends, it doesn't mean that he acquires verticality. He does not go somewhere. The moon? Mars? Do you remember in 1961? Do you remember? Anyway. Khrushchev in the Soviet Union in 61, they put their first cosmonaut in space. They beat us. Do you guys remember this at all? Yeah, John Kennedy was not happy about it. Anyway, so he flew around up there. He wasn't, the cosmonaut was an Orthodox Christian, a deeply pious man. He was a believer. He came back and he just talked about the glory of God. Khrushchev misrepresented him entirely and in a speech, he said, we sent a cosmonaut to up into the heavens. God wasn't there, so that proves atheism is true. That is a really weird quote. Do any of you remember ever reading that quote or hearing about that quote? We went to the heavens and we looked around and we couldn't find him. No. In the ascension, Jesus is transformed into the reality that is shared by the Father. Jesus appropriates a very different reality as he moves into this sphere that is completely unlike creation. He enters the realm of God, and that is something that is not limited by our conceptions of time and space. Okay, so what are the things that we want to hold on to when we think about the Ascension? What are the enormous ideas that the Ascension provides? And let's sort of make a list of these because these are the kinds of things that you and I want to pack away in our hearts because they are going to be like guidelines on the highway to make sure that we don't go astray. The first idea is that Jesus now reigns alongside God in heaven. He is enthroned at God's right hand so therefore, in the ancient world, when you think about, they often had two cedar thrones. Did you know that in the ancient world? They're really very cool. So the monarch sits on one side, and then he can bless and honor somebody by putting him on his right side. This person who is on his right side, usually his firstborn son, is going to share in his authority. So that is, again, just another spatial, figurative conception that help us see Jesus' resumption of his place. The danger in that imagery is we begin to think of Jesus sitting alongside the Father as if they were completely separate. No, we need a different vocabulary for this. Jesus in his ascension has resumed his place with the Father, but he has been re-assimilated into the divine life of God. He is not a secondary God in heaven. He is not a second God in heaven. He now resumes the divine life he has always had because there is one God in heaven. And that one God sent a feature of himself into the world and we call this feature the Son of God. So therefore, if he reigns in heavens, then we should call him Lord as the rest of the New Testament says. He is worthy of worship. Have you ever gotten all tangled up wondering, do I pray to the Father? Do I pray to the Son? Who do I pray to? Jesus and the Father share one divine life. So we pray to both. The second idea is that Jesus is now in heaven welcoming believers there. 
He has gone ahead to us, as John 14 says, and he is making a place for us. So when Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7, do you remember, before he dies in Acts, at the end of chapter 7, he then looks into the heavens and he sees Jesus not sitting on that throne, but standing eager to welcome him. Pause and think about that for a moment. When you die, you will pass from this world through that membrane, through that portal. And when you enter heaven, Jesus will be eager to welcome you there. The third idea is that Jesus, in going to heaven, in his ascension, has promised to send a gift. In other words, he never wants to leave us abandoned. And so therefore, another dimension of God's divine life is the Holy Spirit, which he now will send from heaven as a divine gift to sustain us and to comfort us in this world. Here's another idea. As I read the rest of the New Testament, I find out from heaven, Jesus can still act. Jesus has pierced that barrier between heaven and earth, but also he is able to move across that barrier at will. So therefore, when the Apostle Paul is on the road to Damascus, Jesus can speak directly to him about his involvements in persecuting the church. So therefore, it is appropriate for us to pray. It is appropriate for us to ask Jesus to act. It is appropriate for us to ask Jesus to act. And that's what they do in the rest of the book of Acts. But here's the last thing that I think that I, I want you to take home that is just so essential. We now can approach God with confidence. That's what I want you to mainly take away from this ascension. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus now, when he is in heaven, he is our high priest. He is standing in heavenly courts. That's imagery just for us to help understand this. So when he is in heaven, he does not have to persuade the Father to love us. The Father was present in everything that Jesus ever said or did. Jesus did not come into heaven to change God's mind. Jesus came into the world to show God's mind. And in that is all the difference in how we think about Jesus. So therefore, when we imagine ourselves stepping into heaven, it's interesting to ask what we think will happen. Here's a great exercise you can do with young children. Many people in Sunday schools have done this. They've said to children, hey, there's some crayons, here's some paper. I want you to draw a picture of God. And then I want you to draw a picture of Jesus. That's a really interesting exercise. But it, they don't become icons. This is not idolatry. It's just Sunday school. <laughs> and you know what comes out of this? God becomes a really old guy who looks kind of angry. His arms are folded, and he's carrying a really big book that he might throw it at you. <laughs> Jesus is a really cool uncle. <laughs> he's got a really cool haircut. And he looks really friendly, he's really smiley, and he's the guy you want. Wow, that's an incredible idea. That somehow Jesus is in heaven and he's trying to persuade, to sort of bend the will of this father who's carrying this book. 
Here is the gospel for this morning. When you step into heaven and you meet the resurrected, ascended Jesus, you may say to him, Jesus, I'm so glad you caught up with me. I'm so glad. But where is the Father? I mean, he's got to be around here somewhere. I'm just going to hang with you. Is that okay? <laughs> and Jesus will say to you the very same thing he said to Philip in John chapter 14. Don't you realize that if you've seen me, you have already seen the Exactly. In the ascension, Jesus has resumed his divine life. He has been drawn back into the heart of God. And therefore, when we as creatures encounter him, Christ is God's messenger to embrace us. Amen? It's good news. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the beautiful drama, the choreography, we called it, of your movement from heaven to earth and back again. Father, give us the comfort we need knowing that your son has brought our humanity to you and you are there waiting for us, eager to welcome us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.